Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Great singing. You may be seated. It really is good to see you um, this morning. I, uh, I know how much of a struggle it is the day after uh, when your clocks have to go ahead and you lose an hour of sleep. But you are the hardcore people of Temple. So we're so glad that you're, you're here this morning. And certainly want to welcome all of our guests if this is your first time. We're so delighted. We love having company in our home this morning. We have a a number of people away. We have a marriage retreat actually happening this weekend, so Pastor Dave and Lori are away with a a large number of our couples. I've really been praying for them, that that God would do some great things. And um, what else? Is it just just feedback up here, or are you guys getting it too? Yeah. We just tone that down a little bit. So it's spring break, and I understand why a lot of people headed south this weekend. Why did, I think winter revisited us. Something happened. It wasn't good. Um, Well, if you're just joining us, we have been studying the book of Jonah, and we're in week six. Who would have ever thought a book with 48 verses, we'd be six weeks and only halfway through? I mean, seriously, I mean... You would think one Sunday, maybe two Sundays, would be all that would be necessary to get through the book of Jonah. And here we are in uh, week six. And uh, I promise, I promise I will wrap it up in the next uh, couple of weeks or months. Um, I I think I have to be honest, the book kind of caught me off guard. Uh, it, uh, it, It surprised me. I thought I had a basic understanding of the book. But I stand amazed to realize all the things I just didn't see here in the book of Jonah. I'm always reminded, as people come into my office for the last number of years, that Christians so desperately want to hear from God. You know, sometimes I'll have people come in, they'll go, you know, uh, Donald, I, I just wish God would tell me what I should do. Should I do this or I should do that. You know, I wish God would just kind of split the heavens wide open and come down and tell me. Or at least he would write it in the sky or on top of a mountain. Or with his thunderous voice, tell me, would speak to me. We are all looking to hear God speak. And you know what? One of the most common ways that he speaks is through his word. So this morning as we read it, Um, Let's give careful attention, because when we read God's Word, it's really like God speaking to us here this morning. So if you have your Bibles or some kind of electronic device or your phone, would you turn to the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah. Your Bibles by now should probably just open up there. We've been in there so long. Jonah, we're going to actually start with Jonah chapter 3. We just broke into it last week. Look at me, I can't even find it. It's <laughs> Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Abedah, Joel. oh yeah, there it is. 
It's still there. Jonah chapter 3. Are you there? I was the last one, wasn't I? Okay, let's read it together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. I love this. A second time. I love that. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we pray that you would give us a profound insight into your word this morning. Father, we desperately want to hear from you. We, we need to hear from you. Lord, there are some this morning that may be at their rope's end and they're desperate to hear you speak into their lives. So Lord, open our eyes, open our ears this morning so that we may be aware of your presence. We love you and we pray, Lord, that you'll do a work in us this, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if anyone here has ever done house renovations to an old house like an old house you know you begin to pull back the plaster or you move a wall and all of a sudden all these things are exposed to you um, a number of years I bought a house that was uh, almost a hundred years old true story as I was driving by um, the street in the corner of my eye I saw this house and I saw grass it was up to up to my knees and there was a sign, and when I drove by, I didn't know if it said for sale or condemned. And I thought, ooh, that might be the house for me. And I quickly did a U UE, and, and I went in, and um, boy, I, I, I'm, in fact, I had a friend with me at the time, and he says, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. Run. Run from this place. But you know how when the bones are good, they're a little, little, little creaky, but they still are good. And so we began to work on this house. And, uh, you know, it's true, the roof had to be replaced because it was totally rotten once you pulled the shingles back. And, of course, the wiring was terrible, and that all had to be replaced. 
And, uh, and I remember the one thing that I was really shocked by is that I couldn't keep the house heated. It was so, I mean, the, my power bill or my oil bill was just huge. Like I just kept everything, like every two weeks the guy had to come and fill my oil drum. And it, I was going bankrupt trying to keep this house warm. And then when I pulled back some of the, the plaster, I realized, oh, my house is insulated with seaweed. And that might have been good in 1914, but it wasn't cutting it in 2000. And it's true, when you roll back the veneer, things get exposed. And the same is true about the book of Jonah. Uh, We have been exposed to a lot of things that perhaps we didn't know before. Like, I don't think many of us probably would have ever said we're like Jonah, that we had anything in common with Jonah, and yet it seems like we've been raised in the same family. I'm embarrassed to say I feel like I'm his twin brother as I go through the book of Jonah. We don't like to admit it. But boy, we have a lot of in common with this guy. And when we're first introduced to Jonah, we kind of find a little bit about him that he kind of walks around with a little bit of air. You know what I mean? Like, you know how people, what do you call that when they do this? Swagger? I just kind of picture Jonah. You know, like, I can't do it right. <laughs> I have no rhythm. But you know, like, I picture Jonah walking around a little bit with his nose up because he, he really does come across that he's so much better than everyone else. I, I picture him looking down at the others around him. Here's the prophet of God looking down at others. And that's why we labeled him a racist. The prophet of God. I mean, I know when we think of races, we usually think of, you know, maybe between uh, blacks and whites or rich or poor, um, French or English or, you know, Christian or Muslim. Like, you know, we, we, we use those terms. But really, it's just basically the idea that you think you're better than anyone else around you. And this is exactly what we have here in the book of Jonah. A few years ago, I saved up my money and I went to um, Budapest, Hungary. And uh, I was really looking forward to this. And while I was there, one of the things that I wanted to do was to go outside the city to a gypsy camp. And I remember when I was getting instructions to, to figure out how to get there, someone said to me, why, why would you go there? In fact, I'll quote them. They're such lowlifes. That was the word. They're thieves. They're liars. They'll steal from you. That's the last place you want to go. And I remember being struck by, boy... this person really does think they're a lot better than those people. I was coming back on a flight uh, a couple years ago from India, and I was on the last row. You know the row where the seats don't go back? They're against the wall. 16 hours on this flight. And um, there was a lot of people from India on the flight, and the gentleman next to me uh, had two small children. So, you know, you can just imagine, he's trying to keep two small children quiet for almost 16 hours, right? And his wife is in front with two more kids trying to keep back them quiet. And, um, and they were getting restless and they're getting a little bit noisy. And he's trying everything he can. And he finally got up to take the kids to the washroom. And the stewardess leaned into me and says, next time, pay a little extra money so you don't have to sit with a riffraff back here. Like she was so disgusted with these people. And I remember thinking, wow, she really thinks she's so much better than those around her. 
and that's Jonah. That's exactly Jonah. His idea is like, God, why would you call me to go to a bunch of lowlifes like the Ninevites? In fact, I'm not even sure why God asked him to go because he had such a bad attitude toward them. And he asked me to go to Nineveh. Uh, now, I don't know if, do you know where Nineveh is? If you were to look on the map, um, and, and, and it's in modern-day Iraq today. It's about 200 miles north of Baghdad. You know where the Tigris-Euphrates River kind of runs through? Mosul. You've heard of that country, Mosul, Iraq. Well, um, Nineveh would have been right across the river from Mosul, Iraq. That's where uh, God had asked Jonah to go and and as soon as God said Jonah this is where I want you to go immediately he's so quick on his feet he said I don't like that idea but I have a better plan and so what does he do what does Jonah actually do he runs from God Hmm. A a lot like maybe you and I he ignores God completely a lot like maybe you and I do and he comes up with this plan you know what I think this is a great time of year to take a cruise along the Spanish coastline because that's where Tarshish is. Now, most of us know uh, this story. You know, Jonah ends up on the ship and, of course, he finds himself in the middle of the storm and the storm is so fierce that the men themselves don't believe they'll ever be able to live to tell the story of this storm. And then it's uncovered as to why the storm has taken place because God is chasing down Jonah, not because he's angry with him, but because he loves him. And he's going to save Jonah from Jonah. And then Jonah comes up with this plan of an assisted suicide. I'm going to get these men to throw me overboard, which is what they do. And everyone on board is amazed. After they throw him into the ocean, everyone is amazed because the storm ceases. And they will live another day to tell the mystery of a man named Jonah who was on their ship. And then, of course, God sends this great fish. Yes, a great fish. That's the part of the story that most people like to mock about Jonah. They say, ah, it can't be true. Because everyone knows men do not get swallowed up by fish. Well, unless God creates a fish that can swallow a man. It was kind of God's search and rescue. It was God's coast guard to go to find a man who was overboard. And Jonah, of course, is swallowed by the whale, and he does what you and I do when we get desperate. He's in the belly of the fish, and he is desperate. And the Bible says he begins to pray. And amazing, amazing, as rebellious as he is, God hears him. Like, God hears him. God doesn't ignore him. God doesn't go, it's your problem now, buddy. You know, God Here's Jonah, and he delivers him, and he delivers him. And last week, one of the things that we concluded with was God does not hold grudges. You and I do, but God doesn't hold grudges. And in chapter 3, we find that actually God comes to Jonah the second time. Thank God He comes a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, and a sixth time. Where would any of us be if God wouldn't come to us a second time? We've said from day one that this book is all about sin and... Is this a new crowd? 
This, it does get discouraging. <laughs> it's all about sin and grace. It's all about desperation and... Oh, you're there. You are there. It's all about how far our sin reaches, but how much farther God's grace reaches. That's what this book is all about. Now, when you read through the book of Jonah, maybe you've been reading through it throughout the week. It only takes about 15 minutes, and I've been reading it through a number of times, and um, one of the things that has been drawn to my attention is a few emphasis. There's an emphasis on a, on a few certain words. Words like great, large, exceedingly. Um, and they're found in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Like the task for Jonah is large. Jonah's hatred toward the Ninevites was great. The storm is large. The fear of the sailors is great. The fish is great in size. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. The conversion of Nineveh was large. Jonah's anger toward God was huge. I mention this because in the book of Jonah, it's all about sin and grace, and our sin is great, but his grace is great, and his mission is great. We discover that in this book. Now, we discover in chapter 3 that Jonah's actually going to obey God. He's actually going to do it, even though his attitude hasn't changed. He's going to go to the people that he doesn't like. You know, if he had done this back in chapter 1, Jonah would only be 24 verses. Right? It would be even a lot shorter than what we're reading now. But can we just be honest with ourselves this morning? Don't we do the same thing that Jonah does when it comes to looking around and going, that's a worse sinner than me. <laughs> that, that lady over there, she's a sinner. I think Jesus talked about that. Didn't he mention that? He said, it's so easy to see the speck in someone else's eye and miss the beam that's right across our own eyes. See, the Pharisees were great at it. You know, and so am I. And so are we. We're all, in, we're all sinners in need of God's grace. You know, somehow we think that the gospel is only for those who don't know God. You know, those bad, bad, bad sinners of Sarnia. That's where the grace of God needs to go. You know, sometimes we put the gospel on the top shelf because we got our ticket into heaven. But the gospel is for the Christian. The gospel is the gas, the fuel that gets us going. The gospel is the antidote to sin. And we sin every day, therefore we need this antidote. The gospel. And have you ever noticed... That sin is not a respecter of persons. We, ju- we can tell that right from here. It's from the book of Jonah. Sin affects Jonah, and he's religious. And sin affects the Ninevites, and they're irreligious. Jonah is morally conservative. The Ninevites are morally liberal. And sin reaches into the life of the religious and the irreligious and the morally conservative, and the morally liberal. You know, sometimes we Christians come to a very wrong conclusion that the main problem is out there, and we forget to look what's in here. We forget to look at ourselves. And if we don't get this right, 
that we're sinners in need of grace will never live graciously. We'll always be about identifying the others and their sin. See, we really have absolutely no room to be pointing fingers. We just don't. There's no room for that. Especially, as we've talked about here, the prophet of God, the self-righteous man. You know, I, when I read through this, I can't help but think of the story of the prodigal son. Remember that? The self-righteous older brother. Looking at his younger brother. Because he felt he was so much better, right, than his younger brother. And isn't it interesting that when you read through that story, that it's the younger immoral brother who gets God's grace first. He gets it first before the self-righteous older brother. In Jesus' day, it's the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the adulterers, the liars. They get it first, the grace of God, long before the religious righteous. Sin reaches to both the religious and the non-religious. I know Jonah was bad. I know that. We know that. We study that. And we know the sailors are bad. But let me tell you, the Ninevites, like they're the wicked of the wicked. I mean, this is the epicenter of wickedness. It was a shopping center of perverseness. And God's desire to go after a city like Ninevite, like the Ninevites, shows that his compassion is absolutely indescribable. I mean, we're talking about the worst of the worst. And that's his target. And that's who he wants to go after. His passion for those who are far from him. That they would be able to experience his grace. God's capacity to forgive is far greater than our capacity to sin. His capacity um, to forgive and extend grace is infinitely better than our capacity to sin. And that is great news. God's ability to clean up greater than our ability to mess up. That's God. And God's grace is so large and it's so expansive that it goes in both directions to the religious and to the non-religious. That's the grace of God. And regardless of where you are today, God's grace is extended to you. Our sin, yes, it does reach far. But God's grace always reaches farther. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You just come as you are. That's what I love about the grace of God. Now, I know that there would be some in this room who would say to me, well, Donald, <laughs> you don't know me. If my wife knew what I did, or if my husband knew what I've done, or if my parents realize I am not who they think I am. You know, this all sounds really good for others. But let me tell you, regardless of where you've been and what you've done, God's grace reaches farther. That's the power of the gospel, that you don't have to clean yourself up first. So God's mission to Nineveh was great. And God is interested in all kinds of people, all kinds of people, unlike you and I. God is not a racist. He loves all people, all stripes. Let's be honest, 
Baptist, we kind of think we're a little bit better, right, than the Catholics. The United think they're a little bit better than the Pentecostal. The Anglicans think they're a little bit better than the Presbyterians. And the gospel hollers, they're better than anybody, right? <laughs> I mean, we all have this idea that we're just a little bit better. But listen to me, God is for all people. All people. That's God. God is on a mission to make all things new. And until Christ returns, God is called the church to continue the mission that Christ started one day and one day will complete. And that's our mandate. God has transformed us so that we could share with others. God has saved us to spread his fame and his name is great. We're part of a much greater story than just our life. And that's why I said you just can't live for yourself. Our sin, God's grace, his mission all intersect at the cross. Now, I can't imagine what was going through Jonah's mind when he entered the city of Nineveh, honestly, because he's going across enemy lines, right? We know that the Ninevites and Israel, they hate each other. There's no love lost between them, and now he's actually going to go behind enemy lines. So I don't know what he thought when he walked into that city of Nineveh. I am sure, I just kind of picture all eyes are on him as he's walking through. I don't know if he thought he was going to be arrested. I don't know if he thought he was going to be killed. But I think every eye was on him. And God sends someone like Jonah, which is amazing when you think about it. God sends Jonah, who has no platform in Nineveh. He has no influence. He has no reputation. He has no authority. And that's who God sends. Here in chapter 3, we probably have the greatest, and I, I think this is true, the greatest revival of all times. If you've ever studied revivals throughout history, this has got to be the greatest one ever recorded for man. What we're about to see in chapter 3 is a phenomena of God. Nineveh, this great city. In fact, the Bible says it's exceedingly great. This is a major city, by the way. And when you study history, you find that the city of Nineveh had walls that were 100 feet high that surrounded the entire city with over 1,500 towers to protect the city. In fact, the walls were so wide, history tells us that three chariots could ride side by side along the top of the wall. The city was great in beauty. It rivaled the city of Babylon in its splendor. This is a city that had great influence. It's the most important city and the most important empire of its day. It influenced culture and commerce and religious, religion and innovation. This was a happening cities. By the way, cities are important to God. And the city of Sarnia is important to God. That's why we need to reach out with Christ. Tim Keller, I don't know if you're familiar, but Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. And this is what he says about the church and the city. He says, if the church is going to affect our culture, it has to be able to influence the cities. Cities are where culture is developed. It's the gatekeeper of sinners, universities, polit politics, influence, transportation, hub, technology, entertainment, companies, culture, creativity. As the city goes, so goes society. When cities are headed toward a Christian influence, culture will be headed toward a Christian influence. 
And the opposite is true as well. Cities are pagan today. Rural areas are more of a Christian bias. Society always follows the lead of the city. And God has placed us here in the middle of Sarnia, a city of 75,000 people. One of my prayer, daily prayers is, God, that you would increase our influence in this city. Because so goes the city, so goes the culture and society. So what are we supposed to do? Um, you know, here's, we are Christians living in the city. Well, there were some words given to Israel when they were taken captive and in a city. Can I read it to you? It's from Jeremiah. You don't have to look this up. Let me just read it to you. Again, this is God's people living in a foreign city. And Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. And also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, so will you. Love the city. Love the city. But don't lose your identity. Love and live in the culture. Help transform it. Influence the culture. Not that we accept it all. And that's where the tension always comes from. Like, what do I participate in? What don't I participate in? But love the city. If Christianity totally withdraws from culture, we will lose our influence. Because sometimes as a church, we want to pull back. And we begin to lose our influence. And we have a tendency to develop our own church subculture. And then we begin to remove ourselves from what's happening. The message that was from God is that one is one that you wouldn't think would be well received. Right? Here's Jonah going into the city. Here's the message that Jonah is going around. And 40 days you're going to be destroyed. It's so comforting. So, like, engaging. Right? So seeker-sensitive, as he says. Forty days and the city will be destroyed. It wasn't one of those messages that says, you know, you have a problem? You have a problem, Nineveh. You're mean. <laughs> You're really mean people. If you would just have happy thoughts, like happy, happy thoughts. Be happy, Nineveh, don't worry. Right? Hey, Nineveh, you need some extra pocket cash? God has a plan to double your money. No, Jonah's message is short it's direct, and honestly, it's offensive that he delivers. But in verse 5, guess what? Nineveh believes God. What? With that kind of a message? It says that Nineveh believed God. There wouldn't be anyone that was alive in that day that would have said, if they came back with a story that says, Nineveh has turned to God. They'd have been, oh, yeah, right. Get serious. You can imagine Jonah going back, going back to his hometown to say, the whole city of Nineveh has turned to God. They'd be like, come on, Jonah. 
you're such a liar. Right? Nobody's going to believe him because it would be impossible. I like what, how one pastor put it. He says, Nineveh coming to Christ is like saying Hugh Hefner coming to Christ and doing seminars on sexual purity. It would be like Tom Cruise getting saved and becoming an evangelist for Christ. It would be like Madonna or Lady Gaga becoming a gospel singer. It would be like the Vegas Strip turning to Christ and all the casinos turned into church auditorium. That is the magnitude of what has happened in Nineveh. It is so unbelievable, and I wouldn't believe it if I didn't read it for myself right from God's word because it's so incredible that God could transform a city that a city would actually turn to him. And the Bible says, from the king to the kids, they believed. They believed God. In fact, the king gives orders. Let everyone be covered in ashes, sackcloth and ashes. Don't eat. Don't drink. You, your wife, your family, your children, your oxen, your, your animals, your pets, nobody. And pray. Because he says, maybe, just maybe, God would show his compassion and relent on what he's going to do to our city. Just maybe, God will give us a second chance. And God shows compassion. Like God. God shows compassion. God extends to them grace. Of all people, of all the people in the world, the Ninevites, the worst of the worst, he shows them his grace. Our sin is great. Oh, it's great. But God's grace is greater. And Nineveh experiences um, genuine repentance. When I read this story, I can't help but think what Christ has done for us. You know, the Apostle Paul writes for us in Ephesians. And, and there's a passage of scripture that gives us our diagnosis. That we're sinners. We're dead in our sin. That's the diagnosis. But then Paul goes on to say there's actually a cure, though. There's a cure for the diagnosis uh, of your sin. Uh, let me read it for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, you don't need to turn there. Let me read it for you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But, that's the diagnosis. This is who you are without Christ. But then, this is but. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
He has just described the most unlovable kind of people in the first part of that chapter, and he loves them. See, for us, we have to become lovely, lovable before people will love us. But that's not what God does. God doesn't wait till we become lovable and then love us. I mean, that's how we work. That's how we operate. We try to do our best and people will love us. But that's totally different thing than what God does. Like his thoughts are so upside down. It's, that's why we think it's so backwards at times. Because God loves the unlovable. Before they ever become lovable, he loves them. And that's his grace. That's why we say it's so radical, the grace that he extends to us. It says, but because of his great love for us here, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order, listen to this, in order that in the coming days he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you know, he has saved us so that forever and ever he would show us more and more and more and more of his kindness and grace. That's why he saved us. So we could see more of it. Is that not a, I can hardly get my mind wrapped around that. That's our God. We never, ever outgrow our need of his grace. We never outgrow it. We never get to the point where we get stronger and stronger and a little better, and so we just need a little bit less now of his grace. Nuh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Don't, don't believe that lie. We need God's grace every bit today is the day that our hearts return to him. It's not about us trying to fix ourselves up and getting better and stronger. That's not how God's grace works. And then, listen to this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. The Apostle Paul knows we are addicted to works. <laughs> we are. We just are. Always trying to prove ourselves. Always trying to get involved in self-salvation projects. That's us. That's who we are. But he gives it to us free. The only thing that you and I contribute to salvation, the only thing that you and I contribute to, is our sin that makes it necessary. We contribute our unrighteousness, which makes it necessary for Christ's righteousness. And let me tell you, that is good news, that God works in the bad news. And this love sets us free. We are diagnosed, and the cure is both found at the same place, the cross, the cross of Jesus. The focus of our faith is not on us. It is on the one who came to do for us that we just could not do for ourselves. And his name is Jesus. And he died to set you free. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and 
our eyes closed. Just want to ask a question. Do you need a spiritual makeover? Do you need a second chance this morning? Has for you Jesus only been your get out of hell ticket and nothing more? It's true, none of us deserve God's love. However, God still loves you. He loves you. He loves you enough to send his son. And the Bible says that anyone who would call upon his name would be saved. Anyone here needing a second chance? Anyone here needing a relationship with God this morning? Anyone here wanting to be sold out for Christ this morning? Anyone want to have a greater influence in our city and make a difference? If you don't know Jesus this morning, his grace, his grace is being extended to you now. And if you would pray right here where you are, God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Just take my life. Take my life. I give it to you. The promise of God is, if you call on the name of the Lord, he will save you. That's the grace of God. Loving the unlovable. This morning. Father, it has been a great privilege of ours to open up your word. And Lord, it seems that every time we open it up, every passage we read, it just points to Jesus. It keeps pointing to Jesus. The focus is not on us. The focus is on Jesus and what he came to do to set men and women free from bondage, the bondage of having to try to prove ourselves to God. It's not about getting better and better and stronger and stronger. It's about the grace of God that sets us free. So, Lord, this morning, for those who may not know Christ, do a work in their lives this morning. For those, Lord, who are at their ropes end this morning, remind them of the grace of God that is extended to all. 